Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. Little chat. Little chat. Chat, 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 chat. For Chat with Nick Bat, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for this inaugural edition of Chat with Nick Bat, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I got to say, this feels good. I really, I really do. Uh, this podcast has been a joy to create. So this, this chat with Nick Bat show, I want this to be a show of, where I bring on folks who I think have really, really interesting things to say. And it's going to be about things that are less connected to what's on the field for the Bills and more about the stuff that's going on around the Bills, right? I, I previously described what I wanted to do with this podcast as being human interest focused. And I, I dropped psychology in there. I knew that I wanted to have a conversation with a person like Brian. Let me get back to this. So, so Brian Miles is the mental performance coach for the Cleveland Indians. He is someone who I got in contact with partially because we are both in Northeast Ohio, but essentially I, I wanted to talk to, I thought, a sports psychologist. And the reason I wanted to talk to somebody who is a sports psychologist is because I wanted to talk about things like the clutch gene and about momentum and about how people are thinking about things in their mind will affect their performance. You know, obviously athletes, obviously Bills players, obviously Josh Allen, right? <laughs> That's what we're all thinking about and interested in and, and spending our time mulling over. So I wanted to talk to a sports psychologist. I wanted to talk to an expert about how players are trained to think about things and what sorts of knowledge exists for the best way to handle things whenever you're going into adverse situations or challenges or just a situation where there are high stakes. And I cannot tell you enough about how much I think Brian absolutely had every piece of information and provided insights and thoughts that I didn't even know I wanted to learn about. So, I think you are in for a real treat on this first episode. 
I came across Brian because I started doing a little bit of research into the term sports psychologist, and I was looking for, I thought, a sports psychologist. And I came across the Association of Applied Sports Psychology, and that is a governing body over people who I think most of us are, are thinking about who are sports psychologists. They often don't call themselves that. And I'll let Brian tell you why that is. But it is, again, <laughs> the the governing body is the Association of Applied Sports Psychology, not of sports psychologists. Again, Brian will explain that. But this is a conversation that is about just in general high performance. But what I love, what I love, and I am so excited for you to hear about, is that while I think this is going to be something that lays a foundation of understanding for how I'm going to watch sports and how I'm going to think about players who I want to see grow or how when I just observe games that I have no rooting interest in and I see someone either rise to the occasion or maybe not do whatever it was they needed to do. This is going to be a foundational understanding for me of how I think about what might be going through that person's head. But it is something that these guys are trained on. So it's it's in the conversation. And I think you're going to find so much of what Brian talks about. This is stuff that's applicable. I know it's applicable in my my day job. I know it's applicable in my day job. I know it's applicable in me now being a parent. I know it's applicable in how I... I'm going to try to do things in my personal life, my own goals. And it's just a really, really interesting conversation. I'm going to leave it vague like that. Now, here's another here's another note I want to give you. You guys are probably, if you, again, are following me to this podcast because you are a person who used to listen to me on the Nick and Nolan show, you've gotten probably used to the sound quality of the Nick and Nolan show. I'm going to try to replicate that as much as humanly possible. Believe me, I am. For this first interview, Brian and I did it on Zoom. And so the audio quality isn't as good as it is on some of the other software that I've used in the past whenever I've done interviews or what Bruce and I used to use whenever we would talk, even if we weren't in the same place. So I hemmed and hawed about that. I tinkered with it. I tried to make it better. It's fine. And I tell myself it's fine. You know, if it's good enough for Mark Marin on the WTF podcast, if it's good enough for Joe Rogan on the number one podcast on the planet, if it's good enough for Terry Gross on Fresh Air for how all of those folks are doing interviews right now during the pandemic, it's good enough for Nick Bat. And so I'm just going to leave it at that. Here's another programming note for how this is going to go. I'm doing long form interviews. I think it's going to be really obnoxious and annoying for you to get ads in the middle of that conversation whenever we're transitioning points and stuff like that. So I'm going to play my ads right now before the conversation starts. Then the conversation with Brian is going to kick in. You will hear that and I will be back with you at the end of the episode to just give my final thoughts and transition out. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'll see you in a little bit. 
All right. So thank you, everybody, for joining us for this first edition of Chat with Nick Bat. And joining me today is mental performance coach Brian Miles from the Cleveland Indians. And Brian, specifically, we had a conversation where I, I mentioned I might call you, reference you as a sports psychologist, and there was a specific reason why you like didn't want me to do that. Do you want to give people a little bit of like the background on where you know that term and that word, how that's applied and when it can't be applied and all that? Sure thing. Uh, you know, appreciate you having me on. Uh, definitely exciting to talk about mental performance. Uh, and even there, you notice I dodged the word psychology. Uh, you did. And, um, you know, I, I think just for sort of the overall idea of it, um, you know, specifically here in, in the United States, uh, the word psychologist is a, is a protected term. Uh, and so what that means is you, you have to have a, a certain level of education and it, it typically, you know, revolves around um, a, a doctorate or a PhD in clinical psychology or, or a related field um, that allows you to be able to call yourself a psychologist. And so, you know, you and I had talked yesterday a little bit about it. And, um, you know, that's a lot of the reason why, uh, you know, if you're ever looking for somebody, um, you know, in this world or in this field, a lot of, a lot of folks call themselves mental performance coaches or mental skills coaches, um, mental performance consultants. And, um, you know, the Association of Applied Sports Psychology, which is sort of like our governing body, um, we have a, a certification that is basically a, a baseline of of your abilities and your, your formal education and your experience. Um, and that's called a CMPC, which is a certified mental performance consultant. So if anyone's ever interested in, uh, you know, in finding somebody in this world or this field, you should be looking for somebody with that certification. Um, and, you know, there's, there's very few people that can actually formally call themselves sports psychologists. And so that's why we stick to, to mental performance coaches, uh, really for what the applied work that we do. It's always interesting. You can you can get your your PhD in sports psychology and sports and exercise psychology, but you actually can't call yourself a sports psychologist because of psychologist being a protected term by clinical. So, so again, it's it's this interesting world, and, and I think the the folks in, that are doing the applied mental performance work have have shied away from even just the word uh, psychology. And, um, you know, you, you notice that in our certification um, and, and what our certification is being a CMPC, the, the word psychology is not in there. Um, you know, and, and even just as you sort of look at the broader landscape of, of the work being done in, in, in mental performance, specifically in baseball, you know, we're all called different things, whether it's, uh, um, you know, a mental conditioning coach or a mental performance coach or a mental skills coach. Uh, those are the types of phrases. And I think you'll notice the word coach is at the end of a lot of those and, and that there's a reason for that. And I, you know, I'd be happy to, to talk a little bit about how it's, it's played out in baseball, but I think that the applied component of, of the way that mental performance is looked at now is very similar to what a strength and conditioning coach is or what an athletic trainer is, right? You are a fabric of the team. You are a part of the team and organization. And I think that makes the, uh, the buy-in and the the ability to work with players and staff just a lot easier, honestly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, okay, here I want to give people a little bit of groundwork before we get into just the conversation. So, hopefully, we can have a little bit of you know logic in, in where we jump around. But the reason that I wanted to talk to you is twofold. One, 
Well, the person, the reason I wanted to talk to a person who does the kind of work that you do is twofold. And then, you know, luckily I was able to connect with you and we're both in Northeast Ohio. And I, at one point considered trying to reach out to a person who does the same kind of work as you, who's affiliated with uh, the Buffalo Bills. But I figured that they probably wouldn't be necessarily as candid as they, as somebody who's unconnected could be about hypotheticals and things like that, because, you know, they, they work for the team and they need to make sure everything is portrayed in a positive light and all that sort of stuff. And then it turns out that you actually have some level of a friendship or relationship with the, the most recent person who was doing that work with the Buffalo Sabres and uh, the Buffalo Bills. Is that right? That is right. Yep. Um, so uh, Katie Tran Turner um, was was formerly there. Uh, good friend of mine. We actually worked for the military together and she is an absolutely incredible person. Uh, incredible mental performance coach. Um, you know, she's, she's just sort of top notch. And so, um, you know, it's, it's actually been fun just, you know, people in, in the professional sports world and mental performance oftentimes do share, um, you know, things that are going on and, and just share overall things that are, are helping and successful. And, and maybe we, we probably share quite a bit more our failures. And so, um, she's been, she's been somebody that I've certainly leaned on a little bit and, uh, has been awesome and just, the, the work that she's done at, at the Sabres and the Bills. Um, and, you know, again, like she's a great friend. And I, again, they were super lucky to have her. That's for sure. Yeah. And the only reason that she's no longer there is because her spouse got an opportunity out of state. And so they relocated and they pursued that opportunity. So, um, okay. So the reasons I wanted to speak to someone who does what you do is, is again, twofold. One, the NFL draft just happened and it came out in a post draft interview the Bills drafted a place kicker. His name is uh, Tyler Bass out of Georgia Southern. And he mentioned whenever he was asked, like, hey, how did your how were your interactions with the Bills prior to the draft? And, and what kind of you know uh, communication did you have with them? He mentioned that one of the things the Bills asked him to do was to do a Skype or Zoom call with a, he used the term sports psychologist. Now, I assume maybe it's somebody who does fit that narrow definition, but it was a mental performance coach. And I'm curious uh, if you want to talk about that first, you know, why maybe that particular position is uh, one that they would have talked to a mental performance coach prior to acquiring that player versus a linebacker or, you know, a, a lineman or a wide receiver or something. I, I don't know if there is or isn't a specific reason there. I have some assumptions, but I'll let you clear that up. And then the second thing that I wanted to, you know, that was a, a personal interest of mine that I wanted to see if I could potentially scratch with someone like yourself was the ideas of things like the clutch gene and momentum. Those are two terms that fans and you know people in media will sort of throw around and attach to players or to games, and they're very murky. Uh, they don't have a whole lot of, I think, uh, analytical data that you can easily point to and say, oh, this person has this or not, doesn't have this. It's, it's sort of in that realm of psychology, and so wanted to talk about those things, but I will first... Before we even get into the kicker thing, do you want to give people, you mentioned the military that you were there. Can you give people a little bit of a background of your education and your work history that's led you to be into professional sports? Certainly. Yeah. And happy to dive into some of those topics uh, afterwards. 
So uh, was a former college soccer player. So um, not a high level soccer player, just a division three soccer player uh, in New Jersey um, for a pretty good division three school and um, had a lot of really exciting and cool experiences there. I think uh, like most people that get into the mental performance world, uh, you know, we all have that sort of one defining moment in sports, whether it's a injury or a uh, incredible success or failure. You know, for, for me personally, uh, I, uh, I missed a penalty kick in the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament that ended up losing us the game. And I think, uh, you know, recognized cognitively that that lingered with me for a couple of years. Uh, and I, I had happened to be getting my bachelor's in psychology at that time and learned a little bit about mental performance uh, in some classes I took. And so I, um, I went and got my master's at Springfield College in Massachusetts um, in athletic counseling. And I think, uh, you know, just want to emphasize that, um, you know, that counseling component of that, that degree was actually really powerful for me and really important for the development. And I, I think specifically about what I do now, really recognizing about how um, relationships and rapport with the people you're working with really impact the work that you do, recognizing that when you are working with somebody, it, a lot of times they will bring you sort of where you need to go. It's not always about just dumping all of your knowledge on them, but actually allowing that person to, to sort of guide the conversation and typically you know, come to their own answers. And so learned a ton about that in, in the counseling program and, and understanding how you work with athletes. Um, as you mentioned, you know, I worked for the military for um, close to three and a half, four years. I, uh, doing performance psychology work with, with soldiers and mental performance work. I, uh, I was out at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas for about two and a half years. And then I was in Fort Drum in upstate New York, about an hour north of Syracuse um, for a little over a year and a half. And, um, and then transitioned over to, to working with the Indians. Um, this will be my sixth season. Hopefully we're starting baseball soon. Um, but it's, uh, it's been a pretty incredible experience. I've I started off as, as a mental performance coach working with our, our minor league players sort of in the low A, high A, double A realm um, for the past about two and a half, three years. I've been our mental performance coordinator overseeing sort of all the mental performance work that happens in the minor leagues, um, developing programs, helping out with the, with the draft and, and assessing players um, and really just uh, and sort of identifying specific trends and things that we need for our minor leagues. And this was actually going to be my first year uh, working with our major league team. Um, the, the woman who previously was working with our major league team has transitioned out. And so uh, this was going to be my first uh, year with the big league team. And, and again, like I said, uh, hoping we get that opportunity here soon. Wonderful. Okay. So let's maybe just start with the first thing that happened that, that made me, you know, uh, interested in having this conversation and thought maybe others would be interested in, in overhearing it. The bills asking, a kicker who, you know, low twenties, as far as age, 21, 22 year old, uh, gentleman to speak with a mental performance coach or a sports psychologist, depending on what their, whatever their, uh, credentials were before drafting him. What does that, you know, can you give me your feedback on whether you think that is smart and, and why someone would do that? Maybe why that position in particular? Yeah, I think that, you know, if, if you sort of zoom out from like a 30,000 foot view, it, it feels like any player you draft should be talking to somebody outside of the front office and outside of the coaching staff, right? Somebody who's not 
particularly in, invested in the X and O's of everything, but more invested in understanding the the human being and the person. And, um, you know, I'm proud to say that I know we do that at the Indians. And I think that that's such a huge component of, of, of who and why we draft players, not just how good at baseball they are. Um, from the specifics of, of a kicker, you know, being a former soccer player, right? The guy that can kick, kick a ball far. I think, you know, recognizing probably that they, they just wanted to understand more about his process than anything. So, you know, what I mean by that is like, it is, it is expected that a quarterback will probably miss a couple of throws and throw some interceptions, right? Like that's, that's anticipated and they know that's sort of part of the game. Um, I think sometimes people uh, overgeneralize about, about, about kickers. It's just my opinion, but like, you know, Oh, like I could go out there and kick a 30, 30 yard field goal, you know? And it's like, okay, well, you don't have like tons of people rushing at you that are like six, eight. And like, you know, there's, there's certain components. I mean, I know in Buffalo, it's a lot colder, which is way different kicking the ball there than it is in like in a dome in like Indianapolis or whatever. Um, But, you know, I would imagine that they probably want to understand and recognize what, what is that player's process for, for one, like stepping up to take a kick, whether it's just like an extra point or if it's for a game winning field goal. What's his process? Like, what's his routine? Does he have, have strong habits going into what he wants to accomplish? And then really, what's the process of handling adversity and failure, right? Does, does this player understand that things might not go well? And when they don't go well, does he have the ability to sort of accept that that happened and then commit to the next process, right? I mean, think about all the different stories we've seen of, of whatever, the kicker that misses the field goal to end the game and they go to overtime and then they end up making a field goal that's like, you know, 15 or 20 yards further out to win the game in overtime. It's just, again, that person has a process to be able to accept that they failed and then commit to a process to get over that and really bring themselves back to the present moment and not be stuck in the past. And so again, like, you know, I'm generalizing here, but if, if I was going to draft somebody, I, I would want to know that they have that ability, that they, that they've thought about that, that they're, um, that they're able to, to sort of handle those components of the position and of the game. Um, it's easy in baseball, right? Cause every player has to be able to do that. Cause if they fail, you know, if they fail seven out of 10 times, they're considered one of the best players in the league. So there's a lot of failure. Um, I know in football, you're, you're not hoping for that kind of failure rate. Yeah. Can you talk about why some of those things that you mentioned, the habits, the having a process, which I'm assuming means that you have things that you do in a particular order, a particular way every time, and how, you know, you said accepting that failure, which I think is different than sort of ignoring the fact that you failed and then going out and just trying to compartmentalize that and go for the next one. And maybe they are the same, but it's just the vernacular that's chosen. Can you talk about why those things are important in, in sports? Yeah. You know, uh, you probably hear a ton about, you know, players talking about their pregame routines, their pre-pitch routines, whatever it is. Um, there is, I mean, there's such a component of, 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 of athletes just being creatures of habit. And this is vastly different than superstitions. I won't even go down that route. But, uh, you know, in terms of, of the routines, it's it's a player's ability to prepare themselves physically, mentally, emotionally, technically and tactically to put themselves in the best position to be successful on the field. It does not guarantee 
success. It is not a one-to-one -one correlation, but what it does is it gives you the best opportunity to be successful. And that ranges from everything from, from, you know, your, your pre-stretch, like what you're doing in the athletic training room to what you're putting in your body from a, a food perspective to how you're handling your sleep the night before to how you're handling your things at home and your relationships and being able to, to separate those two things when you get to the ballpark or when you get to the field to, you know, being prepared for the game. So, um, you know, in baseball, it's being like squared away on the scouting reports, um, you know, in football, I'm sure it's being, being prepped up on your film. So it's, it's, again, it's doing all of those little things that will add up over the course of a morning and afternoon. to when you have that night game, to put yourself into the best position. Now, again, like I'm again overgeneralizing, but that all of those things take effort and time, right? Like a lot of these guys could just show up, throw their cleats on, and go out and play. Um, and they, what they would be doing is they'd be leaving up to chance. Because I bet you a lot of those guys could just throw on their stuff and go out and be successful. They certainly could. Um, but again, you're leaving up to chance, and we want to give ourselves the best opportunity to be successful. So. I think from a routines perspective, that's so important. Um, and I actually, I love the way that you described uh, the idea of acceptance, right? It's, it's acceptance is not about ignoring failure. And I also want to emphasize acceptance is not about being like, oh, like I love failure. Like I embrace that. Screw that, man. Nobody likes to fail. Nobody. And so the way that we oftentimes liken acceptance and, um, and I actually, I, I took this from, from Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way, which by the way, is an absolutely incredible book. Um, about some stoicism and stuff. He talks about acceptance, like being pinned down in a fight. So he's like, if you're, if you're pinned down in a fight and you're on the bottom and, and somebody is straddling you, like there, you can push with all of your might and you are not going to move that object, right? Like you're not going to move them. It just, the position you're in, you can't move them. And so there's an acceptance component to being in that bottom position and like, okay, so nobody would like to be there, right? You have to recognize that you're, you're probably going to get hit, right? It's going to hurt a little bit. You, you might get a little bloodied up and stuff. And so you can just accept that fate and just be like, okay, I'm going to get beat up. Or you can decide, okay, I'm going to find a way to get out of this. And so the way that you get out of that, very similar to combatives that we teach in the military, is it's actually called something called shrimping. And so it's you grab the obstacle, you grab what's on top of you, the adversity, and you pull it in really close. So you, you, know, you grab somebody's shirt, you pull them in really close. And then you put one hand on their hip, and you sort of push it away. And you have like this little itty bitty bit of room and you kind of start to shrimp and move back and forth. And maybe you get hit again and then you pull them in closer and you push the other hip out and you start to slowly shrimp and get your way out. That's how you get over a failure. That's how you accept it. You accept that this, this position is not the fate of the world and not where you're going to be forever. It's just that it's a position. And I'm going to find little increments of things that I can do to get out of it. And then once I get back on my feet, I'm going to commit to kicking your ass, right? I'm going to commit to fighting and being there and ready to go. And so you know, that's a lot of the ways we look at acceptance. Um, it's not pretty. You're going to get beat up a little bit. Um, but a huge part of it is, is recognizing that you can get out of that position. And that's the most important thing. 
So whenever a kicker, say, we'll use the example that you gave earlier, how would you, and I know this isn't your sport, but you're, you're, you know, and, and full disclosure too. I mean, hopefully where people are probably at this point in the conversation, they're interested in what you have to say. So we're not going to lose any listeners to this, but you're actually a Patriots fan. So you're a football fan. So it's not like I'm talking to somebody who, you know, is a baseball only and, and, and doesn't really care about other sports, you know, played soccer, watch football, all that stuff. So, but in your opinion, let's say this kicker goes through the situation that you described earlier. There's a game winning opportunity kick. The, the, the teams are tied. You miss the kick. Okay. That sucks. Now you have to go over to the sideline and prepare. And, and if you get the opportunity in the, an overtime, and maybe even if the kick has a higher degree of difficulty, you need to be prepared to make an attempt at that and give yourself the highest you know, opportunity for success and all that. How does acceptance in that particular situation look? Is it sort of like, okay, I missed this kick, the team, but we're still in it. You know, is that sort of what you focus on or how does, how would you encourage someone in that situation to um, apply their focus and their mind? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question. And Hey, just as everyone knows too, like I'm a real Patriots fan. I'm from Connecticut originally. So this isn't, this isn't <laughs> a fake thing. I, I am from new England, so I'm, I'm allowed to be. Um, yeah. You, you know, it's a great question. I, I think again, it's, so there, there's certainly like looking at, at things, um, you know, so it's the idea of like threat versus a challenge, right? Like when you look at something as a threat, it, it elicits the emotions and the physiological responses of a threat, right? Tension, like shying away from it, almost wanting to run away. But we also recognize when things are a challenge to us, right? If I think about something as a challenge... I recognize that it's going to be difficult, but I also recognize that I can accomplish it and it's going to feel really damn good when I do, right? So, so, so that's, that's probably the initial part of it. How am I interpreting what's happening to me, right? Okay, so now I recognize that we're still in the game and I can, I can say to myself, like, I'm, I'm probably going to be called on again here and I have an active choice of, of, of where I want to put my focus. So I think that's, that's certainly the first part of it. Um, you know, I think that the, the next part of it is, again, if, if you just missed a kick because of something tactical, right. Um, or, or whatever, like your foot placement or whatever you want to call it, you know, you, you certainly have to do some analysis and, and figure out like, if I need to make a mechanical change, Roger that I, I will make the change if I have to. But the next part of it is, is like, how, how do you reset, right? Like how do you sort of just refresh the, the page and really give yourself a, an opportunity to sort of, like, okay, like this is my chance. This is, and it's not even like a chance of redemption. It's just like, I'm going to do my job. Right. So it's, it's like, this is my job and I'm going to accomplish it. And so for me, that would be a lot of, 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 of imagery, right. Of like, I'm on the sidelines and all I'm doing is just, I'm, I'm, my eyes are closed or they're open and I'm just seeing myself just kicking the perfect ball, just right through the uprights, like absolutely beautiful. And just the feelings, right. Like what are the emotions that I feel when that ball goes through and everyone's fired up? Like, all of those things. I'm just seeing it over and over and over again. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining the, the, the sound that the coach says when he says my name to get out there, like all of those things. Right. Because what happens is, is when that all, when that eventually happens, right. When you're, you know, six minutes left in overtime and, and they say like, get out there. I've already been there. What, maybe five, six, seven times in that, in that, what, 15 minute period that I've been waiting. I've already been there. I've already, so it doesn't feel, I don't get the like, oh my, like, oh, oh shit moments, right? I don't get the, oh my God moments. It's the, oh, okay, cool. Like I've, I've already been experiencing this in my mind. And it's like, 
everything sort of just is like, oh, I've been here. This is this is very comfortable for me. This is like this is where I'm supposed to be. It doesn't feel scary. It doesn't feel threatening. It doesn't feel new. It's I've been here before. So you know, I think there's again, and that's just one example. There's so many things that you can do. But when we start to talk about like familiarity, right, of like feeling very comfortable in that environment, that situation, the mind can create that for us, right? We don't have to do it thousands of times. The mind can allow us to sense that 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 familiarity, and that oftentimes um, can make it where we are more relaxed and we are able to let our skill come out. That's really interesting. I think like the idea of the threat versus the challenge makes, makes a lot of sense to me. If a kicker goes out in the overtime and they view this situation where they have to make, they have to, they have to take this kick. If they view it as a threat that if they miss it, all of the consequences that will come, maybe they'll get cut. Everybody's going to be mad at them and all of that stuff. If you view it as a threat that it could provide all that stuff versus, you know, focus on the idea of the challenge and what you, everything you just laid out, you would imagine that you might have a very different emotional state in the situation whenever you line up and are going to, are going to put your foot against the ball. So that, that registers a lot. Um, you just got into something else that I wanted to talk about. And it's the idea of, of what I think in football is often talked about as mental reps. So, you know, the bills have this young quarterback, Josh Allen going into his third season. And initially he was actually not supposed to start whenever he was drafted. We had now in retrospect, we know how foolish of an idea this was, but we had Nathan Peterman as the guy who we were going to roll out there, who was going to start games and take his licks and all that. So Josh Allen could sit and learn, right? This is a common phrase that is applied to young players at any position in, in football and maybe in, maybe in baseball and other sports too, but this idea of sit and learn, watch somebody else do it. And I think there's a level of, there's a level of understanding and a level of skepticism with that because we all, like I've sat and watched lots of football. It doesn't mean necessarily that I, <laughs> that I have the ability to go out and, and, and do that, you know, or, or do any of the things that other players are doing. And it's not necessarily just even, you know, talent or skill level. There's, there's maybe something else that's going on whenever you're quote unquote, giving yourself mental reps or getting mental reps. So can you talk about what that actually, you know, if a, if a player was taking advantage of the opportunity and not just standing on the sideline watching as if they were a pure spectator, but whatever um, a more active beneficial mental rep would be what that would entail. Yeah. I, you know, I think the first word that comes to my, to my mind is the word deliberate, right? Like how, how deliberate are you being with the mental rep? And um, you know, the, the component of just like going through the motions is very real in this sense. And I think uh, I, I can't emphasize it enough with anything in mental performance, how deliberate and how committed you are to what you're doing is so important. You know, we oftentimes call ourselves like, like, Oh, we're just like a strength and conditioning coach for your mind right? Well, you can go into the gym, you can go through the motions, right? And it's like, how much benefit are your muscles getting out of that? The, the exact same thing goes for the, the mental performance work that you're doing. And so when, when we think about mental reps, it really comes down to, again, how deliberate are you being? How vivid are you being with the mental rep? How much control do you have? And again, like, what's the perspective you're using? So, um, you know, the, when we talk about the idea of vividness, what we're really talking about is, is the environment, right? So 
like if you're going to close your eyes and go through a, a, a rep of a play as a quarterback or as a baseball player, um, you know, you shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be just what you see because in, in reality, and again, like I've, I've never been a professional quarterback or professional baseball player, but there, there are, there is, there's so much going on from a sensory perspective as a, as a quarterback or as a football player from the sounds and the things that you're hearing, I mean, to the smell, to what you're seeing, to what you're feeling, to even what you're tasting, right? There's so much that goes into that. And so again, if you're going to do mental reps, if you're going to engage in something like that, like provide a vivid picture, make it so it's real, you know, like it has to feel, it has to elicit something for you physiologically. Um, And I think anyone can, you know, whether, whether that's like, as, a, as just a natural human being, like think about something like one of the most vivid things for you, whether it's like your most accomplished sporting thing, or whether it's like the first time that you held your child, or, you know, when you got married, like when you close your eyes and you really, really think about that, something happens to you, right? You get this emotion, you get some physiological responses. That is what a, a real mental rep should feel like. It should be vivid, and then there should be a sense of controllability. And what I mean by controllability is, is we, we control what we see in our minds, right? Like our, our, the fundamental language of our brain is pictures, right? We think in images. And so we control the images that we want in our mind. So if you are going to be doing mental reps on the sideline or in practice, or if you're sitting in your bed dreaming about the game tomorrow and wanting it to be successful, you should see yourself being successful right? Like it's, it is true, like mental blueprinting. We want to see the blueprint of what success looks like. And so I think being really deliberate about that again is important. And then being super deliberate about your perspective. And so what I mean by perspective is when we think about mental reps, there's two perspectives that we think about. There's an external perspective and an internal perspective. When I'm talking about external, I'm talking about like, like third person, like, like imagining yourself on a movie screen, right? And, and that's really good for building competence in something. So if I want to learn how to swing a golf club and I want to get mental reps in, I, I would want to see my whole body, right? I'd want to see the, the mechanics of my swing. If you're a quarterback and you want to make sure that you're seeing the whole field, like, and, and you want to see like your positioning, yeah, like an external perspective is helpful. The internal perspective is like a first person shooter, right? It's like through your own eyes. That's really good for building confidence, And obviously the reason why it is, is because that's what you're going to see when you're on the field. You know, that's what you're going to see when you're out there performing. So again, when it comes down to, to, to mental reps, it's, it's how deliberate are you being? So how vivid are you, how vivid are you being? How, how strong is your controllability? And then what is your perspective? And also like just full transparency, like I don't want to dive completely down a nerd hole here, but like from a, a, like a, a neurology standpoint, when, when you do those three things and you are super deliberate about the imagery, like you are actually strengthening neural pathways in your brain that directly relate to the neural pathways in your brain of doing something physical. I mean, there's, there's like some incredible research on it, but it, I mean, if you are doing it right, there is, is actual impact on your physical abilities when you, when you practice it in a deliberate manner. That is that is really dynamic stuff. That's awesome. So this probably, I, I remember at one point in time, it being really popular to talk about 
I think it was specifically Tiger Woods or golfers and this idea of visualization. Like yep. they were visualizing making the putt, right? Yep. That I would assume that is very similar to what we've just spoken about with the kicker making the kick and giving themselves the opportunity to do that and the vividness and the perspective that you want them to have whenever they're doing the mental rep, right? It's almost, I mean, the mental rep and the visualization almost to me to sound like the same thing. It's, it's the exact same thing. I just, I, we prefer to use the word imagery because when you use the word visualization, you're only talking about your vision, which is one sense. And when we talk about imagery, it's inclusive of all the senses. And so we are a hundred percent talking about the exact same thing. Um, and it's cool because it's, it's, it transcends sports, right? You hear tons of people talking about it. You hear tons of people. Um, I mean, you can watch people do it on, on the sidelines, right? You ever wonder why you, you look over and people have their eyes closed and you like, you're like, man, they look like they're like in deep thought. I mean, one would imagine that a lot of those folks are seeing what they want to have accomplished on the field, you know, and that again, is putting yourself in the best position to be successful. Again, doesn't equate to to guaranteed success, um, you know, but it, it, it's certainly putting yourself in a really good position. Yeah, because I'm assuming having that mental pathway or that neural pathway, I should say, having that neural pathway a little bit clearer, a little bit more established whenever you do try to make the throw or make the kick or make the tackle or do whatever it is that you're, you are hoping to do successfully, you're, you're positioned a little bit better However minutely you might want to posit it is, you're positioned a little bit better if it, the pathway is more clear and more established than if it is not, right? I mean, that's pretty basic. That's pretty basic understanding. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, too, is like there's, there's, a, there's a point of diminishing return from a physical standpoint, too, right? Like the guys, like baseball players as pitchers, right, they, they can't throw with the intensity of a game every single day, right? Because their arms would just get destroyed, right? There's like a physical component of like, of, of saving the body a little bit. And I mean, I know the same thing goes for football players. It's like their bodies get so banged up. So how, how deliberate can they be about working through, whether it's like a play or working through certain things that they want to see accomplished, but not having to put the physical toll on their body. That again is, is such a huge saver of, of the physical, but, you know, so, right. So you have the choice of like, do nothing, do the physical thing and potentially get banged up or hurt or do the mental rep and, you know, recognize that it probably won't, you know, it's, it's not the same as the physical, right? So you can't ever expect the same gains as that, but it's way better than doing nothing. Right. And then if you're deliberate about combining the physical and the mental, you're just, you're going to, you're going to see an incredible growth. And so again, it, imagery is, is free. It, it, it takes, you know, 10 minutes and it doesn't take a toll on your body. It takes a little bit of a mental toll and you might be a little bit tired afterwards mentally, but it's free. Like, why wouldn't you do it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's, let's talk about the clutch gene because uh, I think that we, I think we've already been in the space. I think we've already, we've laid a pretty good foundation to talk about it, but let, let me describe the clutch gene as I think I've heard people describe it and what I think people are talking about when they say it. And then I will, I will let you sort of contribute what you want to the conversation. So the clutch gene, specifically, we're often talking about quarterbacks, right? People are talking about, do quarterbacks have the ability, specifically in the fourth quarter, to overcome uh, being behind the sticks, you know, to be down, to be in a position where 
they need to make up ground and, you know, overcome an opponent that has an advantage. And that is, you know, not checking, not taking check down um, options, right? That is taking the, the appropriate amount of risks. And that ultimately that is getting the scores necessary and, and running the offense in a, in a way that gives your team the opportunity to win, right? In, and probably taking the lead back. That's, I mean, that's absolutely what it would come down to. So there's quarterbacks that have, you know, statistics like, Game-winning drives. I mean, it's, it's tracked and it is data that we have access to. The same is true for people who like they, they will compare passer ratings and efficiency and yards and stuff like that in the fourth quarter compared to the second quarter or the third quarter. And they're looking for this increase in productivity whenever the stakes are higher. And it would seem as though there are some players that have a habit of doing well in that circumstance. Like when those external factors are present, they raise the level of their game, or at least their results would indicate that. Right. And then there's players who maybe the polar opposite happens. They, they seem, they seem to shrivel in that opportunity or, and you hear there's other things about this too. Like when the big lights are on, do they, you know, if you're playing in a night game or something like that, you know, does the spotlight make you better or worse? Right? All of these sorts of ideas. So it, it's often talked about as something that people either have or do not have, right? Do you have the clutch gene? And the, calling it a gene even makes it sort of like this inherent thing that you don't necessarily contribute to. It's either you're either you're either this tall or you're not this tall, right? Mm -hmm. So how would you talk about that idea probably uh would start off by saying you know it's it's hard to look at it as a, a you have it or you don't have it you know there's 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 so much information out there now about you know skill acquisition and skill development i mean carol dweck's work on growth mindset versus fixed mindset right is 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 so prevalent in this understanding of really the the human being this blank slate and being able to to ebb and flow with our development and what we are capable of versus what we're not capable of um and so listen there's you know there's lots of people out there talking about genes i'm like yeah like the you know i mean if i remember correctly i mean josh allen's tall like he's just <laughs> all he's a tall dude right i right, mean yeah he is tall that that is genetics right there's like there's some inherent things like I, you know, I'm six, two, there, there was some things that, that allowed me to be this tall. And, um, you know, I just, I think it's, it's dangerous, honestly, to, to say that this person has this and he inherently had it. And these other people do not, you know, I mean, think about just all the different components of, of youth sports or, or even just like high school sports, middle school sports of, of people that sort of go through those failures and, and, and struggle in those situations and, and eventually turn out to, to be able to be successful and the lights are turned on and so on. And so again, when we think about it from a mental performance perspective, I, I really believe that it is the individual that is successful in those moments are, are able to truly and genuinely focus on what's important in that moment, right? So we call it like win. It's like, what's important now? The best performers 
when when things are looking dim or 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 that they 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 look like you know that's sort of the last drive and it's their their only chance, they are really good about being in the present moment. They are they are so strong about not being future oriented and not letting themselves get ahead. They are the ultimate attention in the moment performers. That's entirely what it is. It is second by second, play by play, inherently belief in like what they are going to do in that exact moment. And that's where all their energy, all of their focus is put. Right. And and again, we're talking about elite athletes here. Like let's not, let's not downplay this, right? Like we're talking about incredibly intellectual physiological kind of incredible people. And so, you know, you take that person and you, you have all of their attention, all of their energy, all of their will put into one play at a time, then like, yeah, I would say that they probably have a pretty good chance of being successful. Now it it comes off as like they are clutch or they are whatever it is. And so, right. So think about the people that, that don't, that, that shrivel under that last play or just like really struggle. It's, it's not that they're not capable of that. What, what they're struggling with is they are probably thinking one or two plays down the line. Right. And we know, we know, I mean, it's the NFL, right. The incredible, like if, if you, if you are slightly not focused, you, like you're going to get beat, right. Like you are going to get beat by a group of defenders who are, inherently focused on that one play. So if you're if you're thinking ahead and you're not truly in the moment and your entire focus and your entire energy and your entire will is not on just that one play, you have the potential to get beat. And so again, it 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 really comes down to just quieting everything around you and just like really being there. And I think that's what's so interesting is that you can you can almost to a sense see it you can almost see it in the presence of those individuals right they and I, and this goes across all sports right i mean i mean look at muhammad ali look at usain bolt look at i mean again like look at tom brady or or look at some of like the the like mariano rivera as a as a reliever like no matter what's happening around them they seem calm right they seem like like in that moment now and recognizing too, the people around them, they feed off of that. So it sort of creates this environment of like, we're going to do this, right. This belief in it. And so, you know, again, it's, it's not black and white. I don't, I don't think there's like any one particular answer, but when we really think and, and break it down from, from a performance standpoint, like who can be there, like who can quiet the noise and just be in the moment one play at a time. I think that that really makes the difference um, in those individuals. So it, would it be your perspective that people can learn that, right? So that the clutch gene is sort of this, the way that it's it's been talked about a lot of times that I've heard, people are talking about whether or not you do have it or you don't have it, right? But if you don't have it, quote unquote, right now, you, you, there's, there's some evidence to suggest that you've been in a situation where you had the opportunity to display it and, or not, and you didn't perform well. Is it something that is acquirable? 
I mean, I think any skill from a, a cognitive standpoint is a, is acquirable. You know, and again, I'll, I mean, I'll tie it back to to Carol Dweck's work on growth and fixed mindset, right? Like it comes down to putting yourselves in situations to get the reps of of whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. You know, I know, I know, you and I had talked a little about this yesterday, but it's it's a you know, if if I if I tell myself the story, right? If I tell myself the story of I am not a math person, right? So if if I believe that I am not a math person, I'm not going to put myself in situations that would give me the opportunity, right? Keyword there, give me the opportunity to become a math person. So that's that's the story I tell myself. And that's the that's the the everything that plays out in that sense too, right? I'm not going to take the harder math classes. I'm not going to engage in things that are relevant to math because that is a story I'm telling myself. So I am I'm robbing myself of reps to become that person, to become the math person or whatever you want to call it. Um, and you, I mean, insert anything for math, right? Like I'm not a dancer. I'm not a good basketball shooter. I'm not, I can't make free throws. Whatever it is, like we don't put ourselves in situations. So we rob ourselves of the reps to eventually get better. So it's, it's the story we tell ourselves. And honestly, it's not just the story we tell ourselves. It's the story that people around us tell ourselves. And again, like I can't emphasize enough, Carol Dweck's book, uh, Growth Mindset, emphasizes this. Like it comes down to our teachers and our parents and our coaches about the type of praise that we get, right? So in, in, a, in a class as a, as a first or second grader, if you do well on a test, does your teacher tell you, hey, great job on this test, you're so smart? Or does your teacher tell you, hey, great job on this test, I saw the extra work you were putting in preparing for this. I know you and your parents studied really hard for this. Great job on your effort there. Those, it's the same outcome, right? It's the same, they, they, the person did well on the test, but the, the feedback that they got from that is going to shape the narrative of their beliefs, right? Of either, oh, I'm smart. I'm inherently smart. I got the smart gene or, wow, my hard work and my studying and the work with my parents is what led to that outcome. Therefore, I am going to do more of that in order to achieve the outcome that I want. It's just that it, it just like, it comes all back to just these, these stories and, the, and, it, and that it's not even just us that the fact that, you know, you and I are both new fathers that we actually might impact the stories of our kids based on the way that we provide them feedback and praise. Like that's a, that's a real thing to think about, you know, and, and, and our teachers and everybody and, and our coaches. And so it doesn't just come down to the player. A lot of times it comes down to the people that they're influenced by, like their coaches or their parents and stuff. So, you know, anyway, that's yeah. No, no, that's great. One thing that you had said yesterday too, that I was hoping maybe you would repeat a little bit of was that you mentioned that whenever people are talking, you, you, it was around the same thing about people robbing themselves, the opportunity and, and the growth mindset stuff. That is a huge Sean McDermott, head coach of the Bills thing. I mean, he eats, sleeps, and drinks that stuff. He spits it out at every press conference, at every time he talks to the media. I'm assuming it's it's vomited all over his players in every meeting and every coaching opportunity as well. But one of the things that you had said is that, you know, we sort of we look at successful athletes and players who are doing well 
in, you know, a very um, public and, you know, high stakes setting. And we assume we, we see them look like they're calm. And so then we assume maybe that that's like easy for them. And one of the things that you had said was like it, we don't probably appreciate how wildly uncomfortable they have been and that they've put themselves in that position so much that they're able to do and behave and seem the way that they seem, even though that might not be the whole story. Oh yeah. I, the, the idea of working on the edge of our capacity is so scary to us. I mean, it genuinely freaks people out. And the reason it does is because you're, you're on the edge of failure, right? And like our ego tells us like, no, like failure is bad. We don't want failure. And, and again, like I'm not, I'm not saying failure feels good. It doesn't. But when, I mean, when you're playing on that edge of your capacity, like on the edge of your true abilities, that is where all growth happens. And that is where that uncomfortable pit in your stomach, a lot of times will tell people to turn around right? And then the, the, the best performers go forward. And so the, the, the professional athletes that we see on TV and stuff, I mean, they, they, have, they have made that space their home. Like that is where they play. That is where they train. That is everything that they do. They, they love that space. They recognize that like the feelings they feel in their stomach and the, when they start to get sweaty and their heart starts to beat faster, and, and everything sort of comes to fruition. They're like, oh, like, yes, this is like, this is the space that I want to be, you know? And, and that's, that's such a huge thing for, for younger athletes too, recognizing that you like, when you get nervous, when you get butterflies in your stomach, when you, when you get sweaty, that is your body's way of telling you that you are primed to kick ass. It's true. Like that, all everything that happens to us from a physiological response of of so-called being nervous right of butterflies of feeling like you have to go to the bathroom of your hand shaking of sweating of your face turning red of getting cotton mouth of dry mouth every single one of those things happen for a specific biological reason that our body is doing so that we can literally go out and perform at our highest level but nobody ever tells you that right everyone always tells you if you got butterflies it means you're not ready no, it doesn't because you have a change in acid reduction inside of your stomach because your digestive system shut down and your digestive system shut down because your body is saying like, Hey, that takes up a lot of energy. We don't need to use that right now. We need to save that energy for you to go kick ass. Like that happens for a reason. How much, how much of a different interpretation is that than the idea of like, Oh my God, I have butterflies cause I'm not ready. No, like you are ready. So wh why aren't we telling people that, right? So all of these athletes live in this space. Like that's where the best performance happens is when you're uncomfortable, is when you're just like, I'm a little unsure about this, but I'm going to go and do it. It's, it's incredible. And so, you know, again, I think the athletes make it look easy out there, but they also, I mean, they, they just live in that space and that's what's really cool about it. That's awesome. Okay, so... Here is my other thing that I really wanted to get into. And I, and I'm so glad that you brought up this, it, it, I guess it's part of the growth mindset understanding of things in how 
the stories and what other people are saying around us can impact our own perspectives, which then can impact our own performance and all of that. So I, I, I'm priming the pumps here to see if I am going to, you know, and you're welcome to prove me wrong or disagree with me, but I, it's just how I'm, how I've been thinking about this, I guess, but it's the idea of momentum. Okay. So momentum in sports is okay. There's a big comeback happening. You know, you, you provided yesterday when you and I spoke for a moment and I said, I wanted to talk about this. You, you gave a pretty good um, baseball analogy. So I, I, if you want to bring that back up, you can, but you know, in football, you know, the bills are the, uh, the, the team that holds the greatest comeback in NFL history. It's something that all bills fans are very familiar with, with a wild card game against the Houston Oilers where they came back and, and, and won the game in overtime. And it's just like, you know, momentum changing. And then because momentum changes, things just sort of start piling on and piling on and the hill gets steeper or that either the hill you're climbing gets easier and easier. And the feeling that things are slipping through your hands is increasing and increasing. And it just sort of almost seems like sometimes teams can't do anything right or they can't do anything wrong. Right. Now that a lot of that I think is perspective, but how does um, you know, is that a real thing in, in your sense? Is, you know, is it, is there anything to the mental aspect of what everyone is doing in the sport that contributes to that? And, uh, or is it maybe just in the, in the audience and the announcers who are suggesting that being the case, and it's not anything that actually anyone on the field is, is experiencing? You chose uh, an interesting word of like perspective there. And I think there's a, there's an aspect that plays out of, of that a little bit. The way that we would potentially look at it is interpretation. How, how are you interpreting the environment and the context of what's happening around you? And I know the analogy that I gave you last night was uh, it's the bottom of the ninth and you're down by like four runs or something like that, right? So like statistically, the probability of you coming back in that game is pretty low, right? I mean, like there, there's no, there's no denying that. Like, um, uh, I mean, the analytics guys have the numbers for you, right? Um, and as we, as we start to look at it a little bit, okay, so, you know, you're down four runs and let's say the first guy gets on, right? And so the, 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 the interpretation of the situation for the whole team, right? Is like, it's like, okay, like, cool, there's a guy on you know, we, we only have three outs left and we're still down by four. Right. And then the guy lays down a bunt and, you know, he, uh, he, the, the, the shortstop like rushes it and overthrows it. Right. So now you have a guy on third and on second and you're like, Oh, like, okay, cool. Like maybe we can get a little something going here make, make the, make the pitcher and the other team a little bit nervous and anxious here. Right. And so, but you're still down by four runs. Right. And it's like, it's a lot. And then, uh, and then the next guy up, hits a single. Right. So now you're, now you're down by two runs. And, um, you know, that's, it's like, okay, all right, well, you know, we're down by two runs and you start to, oh, well, the context, the, the interpretation is actually a little bit, a little bit different. And so you start to think a little bit more like, okay, maybe we can do this. And then again, like another guy gets on and then another guy gets on and all of a sudden it's, it's this, it's this change, right? You're, you're changing the interpretation of the, the environment. You're changing the way that you're thinking, you're changing your emotions and physiological responses, you know? And I think that's, that's important when we think about the, the idea of momentum. Um, the, the concept of like, of, of, Hey, you know, being aware of your thoughts is, is oftentimes 
difficult, right? So if I, if I ask you like, what were you thinking about when you hit that home run? The guy, you, you struggle to say that, right? Like, what were you thinking about when you were on that, that game winning drive? Like that question gets asked all the time, right? And then you're like, I, I don't really, I, you know, they say some, some answer of like, oh, like one play at a time or whatever. But a lot of times if you ask somebody like, hey, what were you, what were you like emotionally feeling? Or what were you physiologically feeling? The answer a lot of times is more detailed. And that's because we, we are very keen and good at remembering our emotions and our physiology, right? We are very keen about those things. And so what we're talking about here is like your thoughts oftentimes drive your emotions and physiology, but we can't always remember what we were thinking or, or tune into it. But if I know the emotion and the physiology that gets me into a good position to be successful, I'm going to, I'm going to find thoughts that help me with that. Right. And so when we start talking about a, a change and, and the, the word is momentum, what you're talking about is, is this change in, in, in energy, right. And this change in physiology and emotions. And, and yeah, like if, if I'm a hitter, I, I want to be excited and fired up when I'm up there. If I'm down by four runs, that can be kind of hard to get going, right? Like it can be hard to be up there and be like, I'm super fired up. Like, here we go. But if, if we're, if we're on a comeback and all of a sudden I'm like fired up and jacked up and like ready to go, man, that changes it. Right. So it's, it's like this whole culmination of things, right? It's a culmination of interpretation of our environment. It's a culmination of, of understanding your energy, your emotions, your physiology that give you the best chance to be successful. And, and those two things are interweaving, right? And they're kind of interrelated. And when, when a whole group of people start to feel that, that, that can be what I think people are, are, are calling a swing in momentum. And again, remember it, it, it works the opposite way, right? So if, if I'm the baseball player and we're, we're tied now and the bases are loaded and I'm like, oh my God, we just blew this game and I'm the shortstop or I'm the pitcher. And all of a sudden my thoughts are creating emotions and physiology that make me really tense and tight. That's not, that's not good for performance, right? Like we don't want that. And so again, it's a lot of times driven by how we're thinking and how we emotionally feel and how we physiological we respond to that. And so, um, you know, it's, it's all combined. Um, and again, that's, that's just my opinion on it. There's, I mean, there's, there's lots of, of, of information out there about it, but it, you know, from a mental performance perspective, that's how we think about it sometimes. Yeah. And I guess that's always been sort of in football specifically the sticking point, the sticking point is, okay. So if momentum is real, if momentum can be something that it starts to happen and then it seems to cause it, it like adds fuel to the fire, right? If that is true, what would have to be true about it is that it's affecting multiple people at once, right? But it's affecting them all sort of on an individual level. They're all maybe sort of experiencing it individually and doing it to themselves, allowing themselves to be, you know, not control their thoughts in the way that you would probably encourage them to, if you were the coach on their sideline, like you would say, don't get tense. Like, don't, don't think, don't think about it in that way. Don't quantify everything that's happened. Just focus on what is in front of you right now, right? I mean, that's the things we've spent the last hour talking about. So if, if I guess, which is a hypothetical, but if multiple players on the same side of the ball are experiencing that, you know, sequentially, and that all is sort of feeding upon itself so that all of a sudden multiple players are playing at an optimal level or a suboptimal level, you know, as a unit, you can start to see this, you know, feed upon itself. 
But I think that the person who argue who would argue that that is that's a fine hypothesis, but probably not true, would be somebody who would say, "Yeah, but you are then you are then assuming that." Whatever percentage of the players, you know, in football, it's 11 guys, right? Whatever percentage of those 11 guys are all experiencing that to the extent that it's impacting performance in a negative way. And the offense has to do whatever they're going to do to attack those particular players so that their performance actually matters. You know, if it's the right corner and that guy runs a, a streak and they go to the left side of the field. It doesn't make it, you know, he could have a bad rep, but if the quarterback never even looked at him, what does it matter if he's, if his performance is less than optimal, right? So the person would, would probably say you're, you're set, you know, for momentum to be real and to be palatable and to, and to have any sort of actual ability or impact, you're, you're saying that all of these different hypothetical things have to stack up and be on top of each other and be true. And I acknowledge that that is, yes, what I am suggesting, <laughs> but it is, it is sort of, you know, a pet, a, a pet uh, project or a pet perspective of mine that this, this thing of like collective confidence being up or down for a team, whether it's the team that's, you know, the, the, the baseball, if you're on defense or if you have the versus the hitter or, you know, whatever the situation may be, that this starts to become a shared, um, sort of like a, a shared thing. And, and you mentioned earlier that players will feed off of each other, right? Like uh, if the quarterback is, is cool and collected and calm, like Tom Brady often has been against the bills, whenever we've had a fourth quarter lead and then he's come back and beat us. And it's been tragic. We've experienced it multiple times, you know, that, that the, his, his supporting cast is going to feed off of his calm and coolness, right? The same could be true if, you know, he was, or one of pick your sports analogy. If there was another player who was experiencing the negative aspects of what I posit as momentum, then, you know, other players, his, their teammates may be susceptible to feed off of that in a, in, in an opposite direction. Right. I mean, I, this is all hypotheticals and it's, you know, probably not as interesting as, as it, to others as it is to me, but that's kind of where my head has always been. And, and, you know, I wonder if, if you think that there's anything you'd add to that to either, you know, agree or maybe bring me back to reality a little bit. <laughs> It's, again, it's it's um, it's a hard concept because you know it's it's things that we struggle to touch physically, right? So it, it's sort of up in the air. Um, but again, I mean, there's phrases for it, right? People people talk about it in in uh, in baseball. They're like hitting is contagious, right? So if, if like the first four guys go up and 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 like smoke a ball off the pitcher, the fifth guy coming up is is basically just like is jacked up and fired up. He's like, oh, dude, these guys all got hits. Like I, you know, everyone's seen the pitcher really well. It's like is that really happening or is that just because uh, the the fifth guy is, is, is changing his sort of thought process and his like his belief in what he's doing? And you're, you're talking a little bit about collective confidence. Right. And that that is a, there is a component to that. Um, there's also, you know, also ways to, to, to stop it. And that's why I love baseball personally. Right. When a when a pitcher is sort of starting to struggle or, you, or a timeout or whatever you want to call it. But like when when the pitching coach does a mound visit right? That mound visit is to break up the time, right? It's to stop, right? To stop the momentum. Um, and, and part of that is, is to go out and to get that individual or that group of individuals, give them the opportunity, right? Give them the chance and the time to reassess sort of the moment, to reassess how to bring themselves back to the present, 
and to give themselves an opportunity to, to really get emotionally and physiologically in the state they need to be, which is driven by thoughts, to get themselves back into the game or to get back out there and kick some ass, right? And we've, we've seen it happen. We've seen it, it play out like that. And, and that's, that's important. My question is why the hell whenever teams are taking timeouts and they're trying to stop the bleeding in that circumstance, why is the head coach or the pitching coach the one talking to the player? Why aren't they rolling out whoever does your job in that situation? <laughs> because it seems like that's part of what needs to happen, right? Is the, There's potentially the person is sort of feeding on themselves and turning on themselves mentally. And, you know, maybe the head coach is well-versed in that language, uh, but maybe X's and O's or whatever, you know, qualifies the coach to make, to, to have the job they're having isn't actually what the player needs in that circumstance. You know, when the defense calls it, when the defense calls a timeout because they're, they're giving up yardage and first downs after first downs, and it feels like they're getting, you know, the offense is, is suddenly pulling away from them and they're not really doing anything differently except for having success. And they call timeout. Maybe the defensive coordinator isn't the one that should be giving them a pep talk. It should be the person who does the mental performance coach. Yeah, we we don't do mound visits. So what what I can tell you is the the coolest thing that I've seen a lot of our coaches do here at our organization is when they go out and do a mound visit. Nine, like I swear, like ninety five percent of the time they don't say a single word about mechanics or game plan or anything. Almost all the times they go out there and and crack a joke, and and you immediately, if you if you watch the pitcher, you immediately see their body language change if they think it's funny, right? Like immediately. And and again, tying it back to what we originally started with this, when it comes down to your emotions and your physiology being primed to be at your best, if you are super tense and you're having counterproductive thoughts and you're having ineffective emotions it is going to be really difficult for you to be successful. And so a, a pitching coach going out there and cracking a joke immediately drops the tension, right? It drops the physiological tension. It changes the emotion of the pitcher, right? And that's, again, like if, if you watch baseball, a lot of times those pitching coaches go out there and they're like, they're super animated and they're kind of like, it's almost like they're messing around, right? And then like the, the infielders come in and they're all kind of like just having this little powwow. Every once in a while, I'm sure they're talking about mechanics or game plan and stuff, but a lot of times it's to break that tension, break that, that, that tension for that player. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that on a grand scale of a, of a football team. Um, you know, I, I, it, it, it can be difficult, right, when you get super mechanical, right, or, or very tactical driven um, because, you know, the pitching coaches a lot of times go out there, the pitcher knows what they need to do, right? They know – they know they're delivering their mechanic. They know what they have to do. They're just not letting that skill come out. And there's something that's, that's not allowing them to do that probably from a cognitive standpoint. Um, and so that that's the job of the pitching coach. Um, I, I think, you know, potentially some of those, those meetings that are, are most effective in football is it's not tactical. It's not busting out the iPads and being like, this is the play and this is stuff we need to do. It's, it's a lot of like, guys, like we're okay, right? Like everything's, it's fine. Everything's okay. And just like watching the, the shoulders sort of drop and just be like, okay, like it's not this tense type moment. We're okay. We're like, we're fine. Let's, let's crush this and get through this. That's, I think a lot of times, um, you know, what, we're, what, what you're looking for to, to sort of ease that tension from the guys. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's just an opinion on it. I'm sure there's, there's lots of differing uh, thoughts on it all. 
Okay, very good. Well, the Bills do have a, a significant fan crossover with the Yankees. A lot of people who are going to listen to this are probably Yankees fans because it seems to be the most baseball fans that are, are Bills fans are also Yankees fans. So you mentioned earlier that you were not going to get into this, but I want to give an opportunity because there may be a handful of people who are interested on what your perspective would be with all of the superstitions that exist in baseball and for baseball players, right? I mean, that's a. I think it's a sport where – you know, that kind of stuff is really, really prevalent along amongst everybody. And, and even like the teams, you know, sort of will yell at each other if, if somebody breaks, you know, doesn't do something that is a superstition. Whereas I don't, I don't think it's quite to the same degree in other sports as it is in baseball. How does a mental performance coach like yourself think about that? Superstitions are rigid. That that's, I mean, that's, the extent of it, right, is like superstitions are rigid. They they don't move. They don't flex. They're not adjustable. And um, unfortunately, baseball, uh, the game itself, the uh, the way that it's played, the everything is 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 not fixed, right? And so um, there are rain delays in the minor leagues. There are buses that break down. Um, you know, there are, are show and goes where you show up two hours before the game starts and you just get out there and play. Um, there's extra innings. There's, I mean, there's all of these things that happen that, that get in the way, right. Of your so-called superstition. And when you have a rigid thing, that is a superstition that you can't do, or that gets impacted by one of those things. And that impacts your ability to perform and put yourself in the best position. That's not ideal for performers, right? And that's why when you, I mean, we heard him talk about routines. Routines are malleable, adjustable. They put you in a position to to be successful. Um, you know, you can you can adjust them as you you change teams or as you change locations or as you change times. Um, that that's what we talk about with the guys, you know. And again, um, people think superstitions lead right so they think it's like a one-to-one correlation i do this i get this what i told you about routines right like routines put you in the best position to have an opportunity to be successful um i would much rather be in that position than hold myself to the fire of wearing the same socks every day to get so um, that's that's my thought on superstition all right fair enough i can see they don't the people who are superstitious on the indians don't have a very sympathetic ear in you. So that's fair. Brian, I cannot thank you enough for the generosity of your time and your knowledge. I, I think that people who are listening to this are going to be very interested in the content and, and grateful to have heard it. Uh, why don't you tell people if you are, are interested where they can uh, maybe keep up with you on places like, like Twitter or whatnot and uh, anything else you'd like to share with everybody? Yeah. Um, my Twitter is at Brian C. Miles. You know, it's uh, it's obviously been a, a really cool opportunity to to get to share and, and sort of talk a little bit outside of the realm of baseball, which is is kind of fun too. But I, you know, I, I also think, you know, just with with the world today and sort of how we're thinking about things, it really does kind of take this idea of looking at how we can have like a special type of humility. In, in the work that we do and sort of the, the world that, that we live in and, um, you know, understanding that um, it's important to sort of grasp that you, you know less and that, you know, you can continuously learn and, and, and get better, whether that's from your family, from the people around you, from being educated, 
you know, it's not just a mental performance thing. I think it's just like us as people thing. And so, um, you know, I've really taken that to heart, especially during the quarantine. Like, I, you know, we don't normally right now we'd be traveling and we'd be in, in the, in the rat race of like nonstop go. And so it's, it's been a really, uh, pretty cool experience to, to get to do some self-development and, and get better and, and understand and stuff. So, um, again, I appreciate the opportunity. It's, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I hope I don't get too much flack for being a Pats fan, but you know, again, it's, it, it was a lot of fun and I, I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Be honest with me. How awesome was that? Be honest with yourself. Are there not things that you heard about how you should personally think about things? Think about how you deal with your kids. Think about how you are going to go after whatever goals you have at your day job or in your personal life or how you talk to the people you care about whenever they're going up against something that's difficult. I mean, that that was awesome. Brian was awesome. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, he, he He's a good dude. He's a good dude. And if you're looking for anything in your life to bring someone in to talk to a group of people about this sort of stuff or anything like that, I can't recommend Brian enough. He, he was he was top-notch. Top-notch. So, what do we do now, right? Well, I'll be back with you next week, and I've already got it lined up. I've already got my guest arranged, and it is going to be a, a conversation with someone that you all know. Okay, it's a conversation that almost everybody, I, I can guarantee you, who's listening to this, who's a Buffalo Bills fan, knows who this person is. And it's going to be good. Just, just come back and check it out and give me a try. Here's the other thing I'd love to hear from you guys. I'm on Twitter at NickBat, right? You all know that if you've been around. N-I-C-K-B-A-T is where you can find me, at NickBat. I would love to hear what you thought of this show. I would love to hear what you thought of the format. I'd love to hear what you thought of the sound quality. I'd love to hear what you thought of the intro music. Ryan Nellis, Ryan from IT on Twitter. That dude is the one who came up with this mixed this this intro mashup of of my music what's playing underneath my voice right now and he is awesome and he puts out his mashups that he comes up with all the time on twitter and you should follow and check it out he's he's a great dude he also mixes the music for bruce exclusive on the bruce exclusive show for bruce nolan so ryan's good dude bill's fan western new yorker awesome dude make sure you're following ryan and here's the last ask I have of you, okay? So you're trying me out, right? You're trying out the Nick show, right? I, you probably checked out the Bruce show the last couple days. Bruce Bruce is killing it. Bruce is always killing it. Bruce is doing what Bruce always does, which is just like dump knowledge on you, right? That's never been what I do. And it's not what I'm it's not what gonna be what I do. And that's fine. We all know that. So I, I'm sure you already like what Bruce is doing. I want to know if you like what I'm doing. And the way that I would really appreciate it would really, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you this would be meaningful to me and I'm being sincere. Go to the iTunes store and leave a review of Buffalo Rumblings. And I don't care what the star rating is. I, don't, I truly don't care. Just leave a review and, and be honest with your feedback because that stuff matters. It matters for this podcast. It matters for the peers I have on this podcast and it matters to me. So if you want to do that, I would be really, really appreciative. And hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what you think. Shoot me a note. Just tag me in something at NickBat. I'd love to hear it. So until next week, 
I'm signing off, and I'll see you next time.